an elderly minister who survived the great Johnston flood of 1889 loved to regale uh, audiences with tales of that harrowing event. When he died and went to heaven, he found himself um, in a meeting of the saints in which they were sharing their life experiences. He took St. Peter aside and said, hey, St. Peter, I'd really like to tell the story of the great uh, Johnston flood. And Peter said, hey, that's okay if you do that, but just remember, Brother Noah will be in the audience. So frequently, we, th- <laughs> yeah, it's, we're, that went right off the heads of so many of you. But anyway, um, David Jeremiah writes this. There's something in our human flesh that loves attempt to talk about ourselves. How big, tall, great, smart, wealthy, or wise we are. Even how humble we are. But God has his ways of helping us to learn that we're not quite what we'd like others to believe. In fact, to prompt a little humility in us, he tells us that our great deeds are like filthy rags in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It's not that God doesn't want us to be lifted up. It's just that he wants to exalt us in his way, not the world's way. He wants us to see that our greatness is because of Christ's greatness, not because of our own. So we've been in this series now, Becoming uh, Whole in a Fractured World, for for five weeks. We're on on week number five. We're basing it on Rich uh, Villadas' book, you know, Beautiful Kind and all that kind of stuff, whatever. You you know, and and we're basing it on that. We're now on chapter five uh, of that book. Thus far in this series, we discovered what our problem is, and now we're on the solution side of that. Let me do a quick review of, of the problems that uh, have been identified for us that have caused fractured in this world. First of all, there's sin. Sin really is a failure to love God and to love others, and it fractures our, our world. Then there's powers and principalities, which are these hostile forces that reside in individuals, institutions, and ideologies that then seek to deceive and divide and dehumanize people. And we we war with this kind of, of force in our lives. And I think the most insidious kind of effort that these individuals, institutions, and ideologies that are hostile toward the Christian movement uh, propagate is this idea that we can just do life without Jesus. Just live as an atheist. Just do most of your life not thinking anything about the Lord. I think that's the main battle that we wage there on that front. And then there's trauma. Trauma is part of the human experience now since it's entered into our world. And if we don't handle trauma right, it's going to master us and we're going to mistreat others because of it. And I, I think trauma is oftentimes the door that opens us up to the influence of, of these uh, powers and principalities. And so we have to be aware that sin... Principality of powers and trauma are are some of the uh, reasons our world is so fractured. Now we're to the solution side of the series. We're looking at, okay, how do we become whole in a world that's fractured by these kind of of, uh, forces? And and I love what Pastor Aaron talked about last week. Contemplative prayer is where we begin. We begin to pray in such a way where we're not necessarily just praying for stuff. We're praying to be in the presence of God. We're stilling ourselves before God. We want to hear his voice. We're, we're, we're submissive and we're, we're more interested in, in doing what God wants us to do than getting something done for us. Uh, there's a switch in kind of methodology and the and, and look of prayer. We're more, we're more about hearing from God than talking to God. 
And it becomes this, this really abiding in God that's powerful and life-giving. Uh, now, having said this, if we're going to look into the next thing, which we're going to do today, uh, that, that Rich identifies in his book as, as part of the solution side uh, of, of, you know, becoming whole. If I were sitting down with you and having coffee, I would be having tea, by the way. You would be having coffee, all right? And we're sitting down having uh, this, this shared moment. And I looked at you and I said, okay, so we know our world's really fractured. It's all messed up. And we know that we're supposed to, you know, uh, go to God with contemplative prayer. What else do you think is part of the solution equation? What would you say? I think a lot of you would say, Jesus, right? That's always a good biblical answer. When you don't know what to say, say Jesus, right? Yeah. But here's what I would say as we're sharing. Now, listen, we're not judging each other. We're just having a conversation here, right? I would say, you know what we need? We need another awakening. Uh, so many people just don't even know Christ. We need a tsunami of the Holy Spirit to come upon people and just birth in them a desire and, and a want of Jesus Christ. And I think we, want, we need something grand. We need something big. You know, God, you need to move in our time like you have in times gone by. In fact, I have found myself praying like that. But that's not where this book takes us. And it really struck my, my soul in a good way this, this, this week as I was considering uh, where Rich takes us in this book next. What he says is what we really need is humility. How many would have said in that conversation, humility is the solution? Would anyone even think that? I wouldn't even think it. I'm just being really honest with you. I wouldn't, they wouldn't even cross my mind as, as a possible uh, you know, solution to our fractured world and to me becoming the person I'm supposed to become in Jesus Christ. We think God should do big things, but God often says, I'm going to do small things to those who are obedient to me. That's how he begins his tsunami of revival. Is oftentimes he does small things in people who are humble and teachable. And that's where we're going to go next here today. We're going to look into the topic of humility. Um, Rich uh, Villadas in his book that we're using for this series says uh, this uh, quote from uh, Franciscan author Richard Rohr. The agenda of the false self is to look good, to pretend. You could tell when the false self takes over because you become easily offended. The false self is offended about every three minutes because it is fragile. The true self, on the other hand, is unoffendable. And see, I think what happens to us folks is we live a lie because of our pride. We start living up to other people's expectations. We start saying everything's fine when everything's not fine. We pretend that we're doing good when we're not doing good. And we begin to live this false kind of image thing. We're just trying to manage the image. And that's exhausting. Amen? And it's a lie. So he talks about the true self here in his little definition, uh, Rich Villadas says, let me define for you the true self here, okay, for some clarification. This refers to one living, you know, authentically for Jesus Christ. You're wrapped securely in the love of Jesus. You know who you are. You know you're loved unconditionally in Jesus Christ. You're finding your identity in Christ. He defines for you what matters in life and, and who you are. There is, friends, no ego need. It's not about you. In fact, you're diminishing while Christ is increasing in your life. There's no need then to win an argument, especially if it's about eggs. 
You know, are they good? I don't know. Are they good for you? This year they are. Last year they weren't, right? Next year they're going to be again. Who cares? They're too expensive to buy anymore anyway, right? But we don't worry about winning these arguments because we don't have ego needs about things that don't matter. Now, when things matter, yeah, we're going to say some things. But when things don't matter, we let the things that don't matter not matter. There's no unhealthy motives driving us like shame or guilt or competition or, you know, just the need to have an argument. There's just none of that driving us. Humility is this ongoing commitment to live then from this to self that's established in Jesus Christ. So I want to wrap some definition about the word humility. By the way, welcome to Grace Point this morning. That was my introduction. Now, in the good old days, you would have thought, oh, no, this is going to go on for three hours. We can't. We got third hour, so you're good to go. But if you're joining us online, welcome, too. We're glad you're joining us. I think this is an incredibly important message this morning and one that really rattles in my heart. And so I'm speaking to you uh, with a lot of conviction and passion today because what I'm sharing is something I've prayed my life has reflected and something I think is incredibly, incredibly important to grasp as a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're going to try to define humility. Now, when it comes to the word humility, there's all these pithy little sayings. People constantly uh, come up to me and say, well, have you thought about humility this way and this way there's a pithy little saying that's great um if you have a pithy little saying there's nothing wrong with that so i'm going to share with you some little sayings here but this this term is big it could have a lot of uh, uh, of definition associated with it but when i look at humility for me to just to make it simple and clear it's seeing god and myself rightly it's just seeing god and myself correctly i know who god is i know who i am it's not demanding my rights, but willingly making myself nothing and having no ego needs. I'm not driven by self. I'm driven by God and love of God and the desire to please God. That's what drives me, not selfish motives. Now, let me quote a couple people. Ken Blanchard's the first one who really most likely was quoting C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis most likely quoted somebody else here. But humility does not mean you think less of yourself. It means you just think of yourself less. You're not preoccupied with self. And it's a good, it's a good little pithy saying. And, and Rick Villadas says in his book, Rich Villadas says in his book, it's a life committed to the lowering of one's defenses. The more you have this humility thing in your heart figured out, the less you're worried about defending yourself. You just don't concern yourself with, with that kind of matter. Um, so we're to chapter 5 in the book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. And Villadus presents to you and I this idea that really a key factor in becoming whole and being an effective minister for the cause of Christ in our fractured world today is humility. Is humility. Because when we're humble, we become these usable instruments in the hands of Jesus. And I found myself just really resonating with this chapter and, and this humility thought. I thought, this is really, really something that's very unique to Christianity. Is that, that this, this, this virtue of humility. And I'm convictional in my own life that the follower of Christ that's doing the life right will understand that they must diminish while Christ must increase. That there will be this ongoing, relational, purposeful saying, I must diminish, Christ, you must increase in my life. The book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, quickly gets to the adult life of Jesus. By chapter 4, um, Jesus is facing off the devil in, uh, in some temptations. 
Um, temptations, by the way, that our parents, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, failed that miserably. See, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve um, to take this fruit from the forbidden tree. And as, as, as Eve and Adam succumbs to this, we see them go through some, some classic human failures. Um, first of all, we read that, that the woman saw that the fruit was good for food. In other words, she said, oh, the, the, I'm going to let the lust of my flesh dominate my impulses here. I'm going to yield to this lust of the flesh. The food, it's, it's got to be good for us. If God doesn't want us to eat it, there's something that we're missing. It's got to be good for us. That's lust of the flesh. And then she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. And, um, you know, it looked good. It's desirable. And that's lust of the eyes. And she thought, I want this. It looks good. I need it. And so much of our advertisement today is lust of the eyes. You need that car. It looks good. You need the house. It looks great. I mean, HGTV has made a career out of the lust of the eyes. And some of you are going, huh? You got to have tile floor. Your house isn't complete. You got to have shiplap. Who does shiplap anymore? Anybody? Oh that was all we did was shiplap for years. I'm going, I don't even think I like shiplap. I don't know. You know what I mean? But that's that, my friends. I'm just tongue in cheek a little bit. That's the lust of the eyes. And then she thought, this is just good for food. That's the pride of life. Thinking I know better than God. This has got to be good for food. And, and God said it's forbidden. And they're saying, no, it's good for food. They're saying, I know more than you know, God. And our ancestors, our parents, Adam and Eve, they failed. So then Jesus comes along in Matthew 4. He's tempted in exactly the same way as our parents, Adam and Eve, were tempted. And Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's in the desert. Whenever you read about one of the saints or one of the uh, biblical characters being in the desert, it usually means they're in a time of testing. So Jesus goes out. He fasts for 40 days in the desert. And he's hungry. And then the devil shows up. And right away he says, turn that stone into bread because you're the son of God. That, friends, is lust of the flesh. He's, the devil's saying, Jesus, let your physical impulse rule you. And Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Yay. Yay, Jesus. Then the devil takes Jesus to the temple, puts him at the highest pinnacle of the temple, and he says, hey, just jump off of this thing, and the, the, the angels will save you. You won't dash your foot on the ground. Everybody will see who you are. Wow, what a sight that'll be. That's lust of the eyes, friends. The devil was saying, show people who you are. Let them, be, let them just be wowed by these visuals of you jumping off the temple and nothing happened. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to do that. And then the devil says, look, look at all these kingdoms of the world. I, 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 I'm in charge of all these kingdoms. They're, they're going to be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And then Jesus said, get away from me, Satan. I rebuke you, right? Get out of here. You have nothing to do with God. See, where our parents, Adam and Eve, failed, those very things Jesus prevailed in. He prevailed. He didn't fail. So you, you read this in Matthew chapter 4, and then you think, wow, right? And just imagine or try to remember the first time you read it. I remember reading this as a young guy, thinking, whoa, that's pretty cool stuff. What's he going to do next? Right? I'm thinking, Tsunami time here. 
big things are going to happen. And Jesus did begin to teach the people and crowds begin to follow him. And we get to Matthew chapter 5 and we read how Jesus, this rabbinical figure, this teacher, sat down. When they sit down in the New Testament like that or sit down in the Old Testament, these rabbinical teachers, that's a posture of authority. So he sits down as one with authority on the side of the mount and he begins to teach the people. And I'm thinking, here, here it goes, here it goes. What's the very first thing he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right? In fact, that's our big thought. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? That just makes sense. Because if you read about Christ, if you go over to Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus, though being of God, did not consider equality with God something to be achieved, but he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross, you know. Um, and it just Jesus' nature is humility. So it makes sense that this king that came to us, this savior from God that comes to us, is so life-changing, and he, he defeats the devil, and he prevails where Adam and Eve failed. He comes on the scene, and the very first thing he says to you and I as creatures of God is saying, listen, bless the poor in spirit, <laughs> for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you want to prevail, if you want to be whole, you're going to be humble. You're going to be humble. Now, blessed means fully satisfied joy from the indwelling presence of Jesus. So if you're blessed, you've got this, this, this joy in you from Jesus that just satisfies your soul. And poor in spirit means spiritually powerless person. You're just, you understand, I'm a spiritually powerless person, but I have this satisfying joy in me because of Jesus Christ. Blessed the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've talked on this verse several times here at Grace Point, but I love how Rich Willardus in his book breaks it down. So I'm going to use that as an outline to talk to you a little bit more about what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I just love his points. So if you read the book, this will sound very familiar, this part, which is okay. A little redundancy is good in life. So here we go. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? One, I have nothing to protect. I have nothing to protect. The poor in spirit don't need to protect an idealized version of themselves. That's what I mean. I don't have to, I don't have to image manage. Any of you with me on that? I think in Brookings, we have a lot of image management going on. We don't have to have image management as a Christ follower. We don't need to do that. There's freedom when you don't have to worry about this image management thing. It's exhausting to live protecting and defending yourself. The fragmented world does that. We, Christ followers, don't need to do that. In fact, I say to you, you're delivered from that in Jesus Christ. You do not need to have image management going on here. Now, should you get to level five personal sharing of everything that's going on in your life with anybody that's there? No! That's really strange. No, but do you need to manage your image? No. You're who you are in Christ, amen? Your identity is established in him. I love the example of Moses when it comes to this regard. Um, Moses was a super humble leader. And man alive, if anyone had some things to boast about, he might have. Can you imagine being there with the 10 plagues? Woo, that's kind of cool. And then going across the Red Sea, the water divides, you walk on dry land, that's pretty cool. Then you get into this, this wilderness hike and water's coming out of rocks and, and God's sending down manna and this quail that's coming to give you meat, you know. It's 
pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Um, yet in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, we're told Moses was a very humble man, um, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, I've read that in the past, thought, you know what? Does a humble man say I'm the most humble man on the earth? Anybody else ever thought that? Because we just kind of talked about this idea that if you're humble, you don't need to tell people about it. But what's interesting here is I, I kind of did a little research on this, and I don't know um, this for sure, but it makes sense. Some biblical scholars believe that Joshua, Moses' uh, protege, uh, came back and inserted that about his, his, this beloved leader. That, hey, Moses was his humble man, the most humble man on the earth. Hmm, that makes sense. That, that indeed is what happened. At any rate, at one point in Exodus chapter 6, the Israelites are doing their usual thing. They're grumbling about a uh, lack of food. And I love Moses' response. He, he just, he, he says, who are we? Referring to Aaron and himself, the leadership of the Israel. Who are we that you're grumbling against us? You're not grumbling against us, you're grumbling against God. Who are we? You see, Moses didn't have any need to protect his image, right? He said, I, I, it's not about me. That's why he was such an effective leader. It wasn't about him. He said, when you grumble, you're grumbling against God. Don't you know who you're grumbling against here? And then at one point, now remember, Moses is leading this multitude of people. He's highly exalted by God. All these miracles are happening. He's doing all these wonderful things, right? And at one point, his father-in-law, Jethro, shows up in Exodus chapter 18. He says, what you're doing, Moses, is not good. The people stand before you from daybreak until day set, and you do the judgment, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear all them out. What are you doing here? I have a plan. Why don't you divide this up and give it to some other people? And then they won't be all worn out, and you won't be worn out. Now, Moses could have said, hey, Jethro, look who you're talking to, buddy. I got this. But he doesn't. He listens to his father-in-law, and he implements it. See, he did not have anything to protect. That's humility. I don't have to protect my image. I can take input. I can change course of action. It's not a, it's not a, a, a ding on me. It's, 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 I'm humble. Okay, that's Moses. So humility frees you from the exhausting facade. facade um, ah, thank you, facade, of, of maintaining a fake you. All right? Whew, sometimes my mind goes way ahead of my mouth. So I think there's this facade going on of fake people all over the place. We don't have to be part of that. Amen? We know who we are in Jesus Christ. We can be whole in Jesus and secure in him. Now, the second uh, uh, point here, uh, poor in spirit is this. I have nothing to possess. I have nothing to possess. Let me explain this one. I can live radically detached. I can live radically detached from the trappings of this world. So what I, what I mean by this, I, I can live healthily detached from the opinions of others. Especially those who don't know God and oppose God. My well-being is not established by such praise or criticism. It's not built up by praise. It's not destroyed by criticism. I can live a life detached from the trappings of this world. Because I find my identity in Jesus Christ. Are you hearing this? Because if you're a normal human being with normal human interaction, people are going to criticize you and they're going to praise you. That's not where we get our self-esteem from. Our esteem comes from our Jesus. We're whole in Jesus. We're whole because we're a beloved son or daughter in Jesus. Now, should you act like a jerk? No. 
Should you receive some criticism as, as maybe a benefit sometimes? Yes. But we're not on this roller coaster of emotional ride kind of thing and trying to manage our image based on what others think. I love how, you know, the, the Proverbs 33 uh, exalts the noble wife. You know, she, she, she works hard and she provides for family. So I'm not saying we don't do those kinds of things here, but they don't define who we are. Rather, as James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like sifting shadows. So we're free. We're free from trying to possess all these things and we just have to understand God you're the dispenser of all good gifts I give you glory I love you I praise you you know the good things that you've given us I praise you for Lord God I acknowledge that they're all from you and you're just free from all this other stuff that's that just wrecks your soul third point here I have nothing to prove I have nothing to prove to anybody and this one I think is huge. I'm free from the need to justify myself, which I can't do anyway, because my justification is in Jesus. He's my righteousness. Okay? Frequently, I, I think interpersonal problems that we have with one another are when we're trying to make something of ourselves. Trying to prove worth through winning an argument or proving that you're smart. And often when someone has this proving myself mindset, what they're doing is when you're having a conversation, they're just waiting for you to take a breath. To jump in there and say, now let me tell you how you're wrong. We're free from all that. We don't have to argue about the trivia. We don't care. Frequently I'm talking to people, I know they're wrong. I don't care. If it doesn't matter, I let it not matter. Who cares? In our world today, we have a lot of opinions about a lot of stuff with 90% of it really not mattering a bit. Just let it go. Because you know what? I have nothing to prove in Jesus. I'm his beloved son or daughter. I rest in that. I find my identity in that. Um, and I, I want to encourage some of you, just rest. I was going to say give it a rest, but that, that's pretty aggressive. <laughs> Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. He lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So now think about this possibility. If we're a group of people that have nothing to protect... Nothing to possess, nothing to prove. How would that change the way we interact with our worlds and one another? Wouldn't it change everything? Change it drastically. And that, this is not a diminished portrait of yourself. It's living out your identity in Jesus and really, really believing it. Um, you are secure in, your, in Christ's love. You are secure in that. Amen? Th th live in that. Rest in that. Think about this question. Because I've been thinking about this question. How can the world we live in be healed without humility? Can it be? I don't think so. It's super important. Bless on the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I think humility is just essential. Uh, um, I want to go a little bit deeper with this humility thinking with you, okay? I, I really want to flesh out that in contrast uh, to pride. In, in this series, in the first message, we noted that sin is, is, is part of the fragmentation problem of the world. It, it's a failure to love God and to love others. And again, today, we see that, the, that when, our, when our parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, it was uh, basically part of a, a pride issue. Um, um, pride's a huge factor in, in brokenness of the world. 
And you see, it's, 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 a, it's a character in the problems that, that we're facing. Um, over the history, the church has taught that there are seven deadly sins that kind of ca- characterize uh, our sinful tendencies. And the list consists of this. First one, what do you think the first one is? Pride, yeah. Then envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. Pride stands at the beginning of this list. Um, some call it the essence of all sin. Why? Because it contends then with the supremacy of God in our lives. Pride says, I can be God in my life. It displaces God at the most elementary place. He needs to be supreme in our lives. Um, Jonathan Edwards said this, pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. And the common denominator with pride is self. Self. So it it manifests itself in in, in self. That's when you know you're beginning to be a bit prideful. So say you have some success. Pride might show itself this way. Self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-justification. But on the other hand, when you have failure, you might not think of the pride manifesting itself, but it still manifests itself with a focus on self. Self-degradation, self-demotion, self-condemnation might be the reaction to failure. It's still a pride issue because it's still about self. And pride's all about self. There's a preoccupation with self. So that puts you into opposition of God. Humility, on the other hand, is nothing about self. It's thinking less of self and thinking more of God and others. Humility delights in, in taking a posture of dependence on God rather than dependence on self. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's why humility is essential uh, to be whole in this fractured world because God graces the person that has this humility that's truly going on. So what I want to do is finish up by, by looking at how to cultivate humility. I want to get practical with you for a couple minutes, okay? Um, um, basically, what we're going to do is an exercise of what Pastor Aaron talked about last week, contemplative prayer. We're going to say, here's how you actually do that kind of contemplative prayer exercise by cultivating the virtue of humility in, in your life. This is going to lead us right into uh, a time of communion. So I would encourage you to listen closely and even now begin to commune with God and begin to kind of pray through some of what I'm sharing with you and begin to practice this cultivation of, of, of humility in a kind of a contemplative, prayerful kind of posture. So if you want to experience the virtue of humility, it starts with the cross and conversion. Jason Meyer, I think he's a, well, he's a former uh, student here and then ended up being the pastor at Bethlehem and in, in, uh, in uh, John Piper's uh, church, and he succeeded John Piper. He, he said in the book, Kill Joys, The Seven Deadly Sins, he said this, listen, the glory of God and the pride of man will collide at one of two crash sites, hell or the cross. Either we pay for our sins in hell or Christ will pay for our sins on the cross. In his great mercy, friends, God gave the provision of the cross. So what we need to do in in a contemplative way and and prayer kind of posture is say, God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for me. I'm undeserving of the mercy extended to me at the cross. And we, 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 we equate our conversion back to the cross. We put the two together and we contemplate, God, my sins cost a lot. Listen, friends. Listen, beloved of Jesus, our sins, you and me included, put Jesus on that cross. We need to acknowledge that. 
and contemplate on that and thank God for his great mercy extended to us through the cross. So we're talking in the coordinated meeting about how hard it is to do movies at, at a place like a church because you have this huge age range and you can't please everybody and there's about three movies that you possibly can even show anyway you know that don't have a rating that would take you out of this kind of context um and so one of the coordinators jokingly said we could show the passion of the christ (laughs) and uh yeah i started laughing do you guys remember the passion of the christ or is it too far gone already i mean it's a traumatic movie i can imagine five-year-olds watching that baby with you huh Mommy, what's going on? Don't look, don't look, you know. And it's just traumatic. I remember going to the Passion of the Christ with a group when I was in Williston. And it was a group of Christians. There was about 50 of us that went. The kids there, some of the kids and youth started wailing out loud. Crying, because it never really occurred to them what Christ went through because of our sins. The trauma that he suffered and how much he was beaten and disfigured for our sins were laid upon him, our iniquity he bore. And when you consider the cross and how, how fundamental it is to our conversion, it humbles you. And it causes you to reflect differently. And it cultivates, I think, humility. Let's move on. Um, to the second point here. A second way to cultivate the, the, the virtue of humility is a deepening dependence on Jesus. There needs to be a deepening dependence on Jesus. We call that progressive sanctification in church circles. Um, that means we're just being transformed to the likeness of Jesus uh, day, day by day. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, listen, the glory of God was even on Moses when he gave the law. How much more is the glory of God going to be upon people when the Holy Spirit comes on you? I, lo- I love that contrast and comparison. In fact, let me read some of this scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. Listen to this. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day that same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now are you catching this? And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, the way to put pride to death and to cultivate humility is to have an increasing awareness of who Jesus is and an ever-increasing awe and dependence upon him. And so when you pray, contemplate on this. Pray it. Jesus, I want a deepening dependence on you. I want to be more in love with you than ever. I I mean, just speak it to yourself. God, you're awesome. God, you're greater than my mind can comprehend. God, you do fantastic things. I don't even know what you're doing. This breath I took right now, it's your gift to me. That humbles you and puts that virtue of humility deep into your soul. And then the virtue of humility is cultivated by contemplating your everlasting end. See, the follower of Jesus Christ is on this journey to heaven and where, glory, where God's glory will be fully realized uh, in an unfiltered experience. And that, friends, will end all pride. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will 
uh, B has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So heaven's existence, the reality helps you in two ways. One, when you end your days and you're suffering and going through the trials of this life that usually people go through at the end of their days, it, it instills a hope in you and it helps you to make that, that, uh, that uh, transition, right? But you know what else it does? It helps you live right today. We have at the end of our days an everlasting end with Jesus forever. And that, that just, it's just so mind-blowing to think of that. And I pray that that captures you and, and, and drives your perspective on whatever you're going through. Okay? So we're going to go to this conclusion and we're going to do communion. So if the praise team can make their way here, that'd be great. Um, regularly contemplate and confess in prayer that you are the recipient of God's mercy. And I love how uh, Rich uh, Villadas in his, in his book kind of quotes an ancient prayer that the Eastern Orthodox Church used to, to say. And it's based on Luke chapter 18. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They used to just pray that frequently. That's kind of this little prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me as a sinner. And that's based on, 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 on um, Luke chapter 18, uh, where there's this Pharisee and there's tax collector standing side by side praying. And the Pharisee shows up and his self-righteousness starts exalting himself. I am not like that sinner. I tithe, I do this, I do that. And thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector. And he's praying and exalting himself. And then the tax collector's over here just beating on his breast saying, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And that, that teaching of Jesus simply ends this way. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted.